0: You're listening to The 66, a podcast where we go through the books of the Bible and we read, think, and apply the biblical text. I'm Andrew Kingsley and we have Drew Kaiser here as well. And today we are in Nehemiah chapter 2. Now last week, or last episode, we were in Nehemiah 1. And just to kind of a brief recap, we're in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, 35 years after the events in the book of Esther and 12 years after the events in the book of Ezra. And what happened in chapter 1 was Nehemiah found out that Jerusalem was destroyed after talking with his brother, and then uh, he prays to God, and he fasts, and he asks for help. Uh, He asks him to deliver the people, and especially at the end of the chapter, he asks for help uh, against this man, or with this man, and the man that he's talking about there is the king. And so now Nehemiah has heard the bad news, he's prayed and he's fasted for what we said last episode for months there. He, he prayed and fasted for a few months about this decision to go before the king. And so now in chapter 2, he is about to go before the king. And we've got this divided up, chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 18 is what we're looking at today. And we have it titled, An Envisioned City. So if you remember from our big outline altogether, we're going through Nehemiah is the theme of this rebuilding the city or restoring the city. And last week we looked at um, a ruined city, and today we're looking at an envisioned city. And so we got it in two parts for chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. And the first part is the vision is introduced, and that's what happens in verses 1 through 8. And you can read there and see that we are in the month of Nisan And this is four months after chapter one. So like we said, this seems to indicate that Nehemiah had been waiting in prayer and fasting for the opportunity to introduce his idea to the king. So four months, Nehemiah is in, I guess, emotional turmoil, for lack of a better word. Um, He's very upset about it, and he's really considering what he's about to do. He spends four months in prayer and in fasting before God,
1: which you know, is a lot of awesome. a lot of the Book of Nehemiah makes me feel bad about myself. <laughs> you know, I think oh, I'm so I'm not very productive. I'm not a good time manager, and I'm not saying this is poor time management. I'm just I like that it took him a little while to get mm-hmm. to this point, and he's using that time wisely. He's not wasting it. But you know, so many things like we'll see near the end of this uh, part of the podcast that he finishes the wall in fifty two days. How in the world does he do that with those mm-hmm. that the technologies or the lack thereof that they had in those days for construction? So, you know, to see time slow down a little bit and know that there's that space between chapters one and two that gives me a little bit of hope that yeah. maybe maybe I could follow some of the principles of Nehemiah. I could do the worrying and praying for yeah. four months. I can do that part so yeah. That's good to see here.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, once we get to our application section, you know, that's I think this bears mentioning, the fact that he spent 4 months in prayer yeah. for this huge decision in his life. And uh we look at how he introduces it to the king. Look at verse 1. In the month of Nisan in the 20th year of king, king Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Remember he's the cupbearer. The cupbearer is not just a guy that says, may I refresh your beverage. This is the guy, he's a trusted member of the king's council. He is the guy that tastes the food before the king eats it to make sure it's not poisoned. He's he's a really trusted guy. Um, and then he says at the end of verse 1, Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid." So the king takes notice that something is wrong with Nehemiah. Maybe it's been over the past, you know, we said it's four months. So maybe in the last four months, the king has noticed Mm -hmm. his demeanor has changed. So this might be something that's really, and that might be too much speculation. But either way, the king takes notice of Nehemiah's distress. And this leaves Nehemiah scared for his life because you're not supposed to be sad in the king's presence. And you can see that in Esther chapter 4. In verse 2, uh, there's a little line about there about, your, I think, your face being sad before the king. That's Esther chapter 4, in verse 2.
1: Um, yeah, no one was allowed to enter the king's gate in sackcloth. Mm-hmm. You had to be dressed appropriate. Sackcloth would show, you know, mourning, lamentation, anxiety, heartache, mm-hmm. and that was not something that was acceptable in the royal presence. You had to. Had to be cheerful, and I you know what that is—is is when when you show sadness, you—it's the king. Kings were very insecure in those days, and they took it as a reflection mm-hmm. upon their their rule. Oh, my rule has not made yeah. you happy. Being in my presence daily and testing my cups to see if I'm being poisoned and putting mm-hmm. your life on the line every day doesn't make you happy, Nehemiah. Yeah. Uh, okay, off with your head. You know. Yeah. Uh, so that that seems to be a Persian thing, yeah. and. We've been seeing Persia as a little more benevolent than say Babylon or Assyria. Yeah. But they still were very serious, and we'll get into that more when we read about Esther and how the queen was afraid to go into her husband's presence without being invited and mm-hmm. how, you know, she was putting her life on the line, but these these kings were very serious tyrannical dictators. Mm-hmm. They were they were not, you know, nice guys politically speaking. Oh you know? yeah.
0: Oh yeah, you can definitely see that from uh, this guy's dad, Xerxes. And then, or Xerxes inherited a lot of that. But, so, Nehemiah is terrified because the king recognizes he's sad for the fact that he could lose his life. And, is already on thin ice because he's about to make uh, a pretty bold request. And that is going to be um, what you can read about in verses... 3 through 8. So now we're going to see what Nehemiah's vision is. We haven't really seen it yet, but here it comes. Uh, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Now here comes the big question. The king said to me, "What are you requesting?" And Nehemiah's response right here is awesome. So I prayed to the God of heaven So before he speaks, he prays to God, which we can talk about more in the application. But verse 5, I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And so now here's his vision. He wants to rebuild the city. And then in verse 8, he's talking about sending letters out in verses 7 and 8. And he even gives a vision of how he's going to do it. Um, send a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So we see a lot happens right here. Here, Nehemiah makes his request, and it is it's given to him. Uh, the king asks him how long he's going to be gone in verse 6. Nehemiah asks for letters in verse 7 and asks for timber uh, and lumber for all the building in verse 8. And he gets it. So now the vision has been introduced. And uh, the king is going to send Nehemiah out. And we get to verse 9, Nehemiah mentions the people that are going with him. He sets off with some of the army, uh, probably in his command. But either way, he's he has them as an escort. And uh, in verse 10... We have a little foreshadowing, Uh, the opposition that's going to come later, really at the end of this chapter. But we're not going to get into the opposition until our next episode, just because it makes it a little easier to uh, digest this way. Uh, So the opposition is foreshadowed in verse ten. Sanballat and Tobiah are first mentioned, and they're not happy that this city is about to be rebuilt. And then in verses eleven through sixteen, we have a a pretty cool, uh, pretty cool scene. Of Nehemiah going around and inspecting the city. And it's a secret outing. He goes out at night and only a few people go with him. Uh, and no one knows about it at this point. The only people that know are the people that he has taken with him. And in fact, they only carry one animal with them. And I'm guessing so they can be quiet. So it won't be like a herd of mules are walking around and everybody's, what's that noise? And they look out. And there's everybody looking at the walls. I don't
1: um, it doesn't take more than one animal. Yeah, to I mess it right. To mess all of that up, but I guess he picked the right one.
0: Yeah, that donkey, I'm guessing it was a donkey he was riding on. That thing made yeah. one noise, it one loud into
1: noise. that hee Yeah.
0: Yeah, so they're trying to be stealthy. Uh, I'm not sure taking a donkey was the best idea if you're trying to be stealthy. Maybe but a rabbit. Yeah. <laughs> you could have taken a rabbit to, uh, that'd be a big rabbit. I guess maybe one of those Texas rabbits. You're from Texas. <laughs> Maybe they could have carried one of those. But
1: we digress.
0: Yeah. Uh, back to the point. He's trying to be quiet, trying to be covert, um, and he's just checking out the walls, getting ready for rebuilding the city. And this, it makes perfect sense. You're gonna if you're gonna take on a project this big. You got to go look and see what you need to do first. And it's so bad in one place um, that this donkey can't even get by. And we can talk a little more about that in the next section. Uh, That particular area uh, was devastated and ended up actually rebuilding the wall closer in toward the city. They didn't even rebuild the wall on the ancient line because it was so bad. They just had to back it up Mm -hmm. and build it up on the hill a little bit more. Um, But then in verses 17 and 18, you can see Nehemiah uh, shares his plan with everybody. And this is where we're going to end our... um, This is where we end our text for this episode, verse 17, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burned, come let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision, and I told them that the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me, and they said, let us rise up and build, so they strengthened their hand for the good work. So what has happened so far in chapter 2? verses 1-18, through the vision has been introduced and the vision is starting to take shape. And so now Nehemiah has come back and very shrewdly um, has waited to make his vision known until after he's kind of looked and scoped things out, knows what's going on, knows it can be done, and now he's presented it to everybody.
1: So we have this
0: envisioned vision. in Nehemiah 2 is a really big deal for a few of the reasons we've already covered. But there's a lot of things working behind the scenes here, politically, historically, that are going to make Nehemiah's request an even bigger deal than it looks like at first glance. Now, if you will remember, back in Ezra chapter 4, and we recalled this episode in our our last uh, podcast as well, um, the story there about Artaxerxes giving a decree that all buildings should stop in Jerusalem. So this is uh, probably a few years ago at this point, Artaxerxes, and it could be after, but it is interesting to notice some of the timing here. Um, it could be that Artaxerxes made the decree from Ezra 4 saying that all building should cease until a decree is made by me. Artaxerxes adds that So it
1: has to be before, right? Because once Nehemiah got busy on this thing, in two months, the whole thing was over. Yeah. So there wasn't really time in there for a whole lot of cessation of work or delay. Mm -hmm. That event that's in Ezra 4, and if you don't know what we're talking about, you need to go back and listen to the Ezra podcast, but it, it... Is This is kind of a flashback in the book of Ezra that for some reason is placed in there that has more to do really with the events in Nehemiah than the events mentioned in in Ezra.
0: Yeah, so maybe that fits between the end of Ezra and the beginning of Nehemiah, maybe so. Um,
1: It's still confusing though. Yeah, it is confusing. I'm (laughs) starting to think about it more... um, you you always just picture there's nothing built. Then Nehemiah gets concerned, and 52 days later, the the walls are standing up. Yeah. But that stuff in Ezra 4 requires a little more time. Maybe it, they you know I I didn't go back and read it again before the podcast because I didn't know you were going to bring it up again. Mm. But <laughs> I just uh, really like it. I I generally forget things as soon as I they come out of my mouth. And uh, so when we talked about it, I don't remember exactly what we said, but I think we concluded that it had to be been something that was going on during the time, you know, it was Artaxerxes, so it was during uh, Ezra and Nehemiah's days, and it had to have been a smaller building project than what Nehemiah was undertaking. Maybe yeah. some repairs and some buildings or something, but it was some construction work that was being done there. and. What The reason you're bringing up is it gives us a little insight into the character of the king, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So we'll just take it from that point of view to, to kind of see what Nehemiah was getting himself into approaching the king with this bold request that he had.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly uh, the point we're trying to make here is that let's say Artaxerxes did come out and say building has to stop. You know, if this was a year, two, three years, whatever, before. Artaxerxes makes a decree that says building has to stop. And uh, in Ezra 4.21, he makes uh, a little caveat. Artaxerxes puts a caveat at the end of his decree that's very important. And he says, let it cease until a decree is made by me. Now, this was a a wise move on the king's part. This is typically what a Persian king is going to do. Because once a decree or a law was made by a king, it could never be changed, no matter what the case may be. And so if you don't put that little caveat on the end, until a decree is made, then that law Mm -hmm. is standing, no matter what
1: happens. Yeah, that's why Daniel got thrown in the lion's den. Mm -hmm. You know, This law of the Medes and Persians is brought up in Daniel chapter 6, two or three different times. I've got Daniel 6.15 in front of me here where uh, Darius is told by you know, Daniel's enemies that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. And mm-hmm. the Persians were really proud of their irrevocable laws, and it's really a major plot point to the book of Esther mm-hmm. because Ahasuerus, another Persian king, probably Artaxerxes' father of Xerxes, he makes this law that all the Jews are to be exterminated. Oh, whoops, my wife is a Jew. And so instead of revoking their laws, they come up with end-arounds or loopholes or things like you just mentioned where he put that little mm. until I say differently yeah. at the end of it. And so that it's neat to see how that was reflected consistently through Daniel and then Nehemiah and Esther. Mm-hmm. We've seen examples all through there of how the law was treated and how they were obsessed with you know not revoking laws no amendments in other words but they could come up with little workarounds mm-hmm. like allowing the Jews to defend themselves or uh unfortunately they didn't come up with anything for Daniel yeah but God did but they didn't
0: yeah and so there was this it was to the point of there was this proverb among Persian people that was the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. So that gives you the idea the idea that it can't change. So now put yourself in Nehemiah's shoes or sandals. The idea uh, uh, is... See what I did there? He probably wore sandals. Um, the idea is Nehemiah goes before the king and the standing order at the time is there is to be no construction done on Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah is already... The king's already asking him, uh, why do you look sad? Why is your face troubled? And now he's got to say, well, I want to go against the standing decree and go back and build my city. And so it's a very uh, a risky request that he makes. Um, so it's really no wonder. This might have factored into the amount of time Nehemiah spent in prayer. I mean, that would seem that would seem logical to me. If you are in the king's cabinet, you're a trusted advisor to the king, and basically, you're going to tell him, I want you to change this law and let me go back and rebuild it. So it's a you can definitely see that God is with Nehemiah just in the simple fact that the king didn't kill him for requesting such a thing.
1: Yeah, because one of the things that he wanted was to... Um, I forgot where I read it, but it was interesting. When Nehemiah was finally coming out with, with his request, he mentioned beams... Mm-hmm. For the building, and I don't remember if it was Xerxes or Artaxerxes and Ezra, but having a beam in your general location was pretty oh, yeah. dangerous around these guys because they might impale you on the beams of your own oh, house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which one was it that said, "Let his house be torn down, yeah. and he be hanged or impaled on his I, on the beam"? I think that was Darius. Oh, okay, that was, it was Darius, Darius, but he was a Persian king. Yeah. Thanks, so if, I'm living in a tent if I'm in <laughs> Persia so that, you know, I can't get impaled. If they're going to impale me, it's going to be on somebody else's beam, yeah. not my own beam.
0: Yeah. But there, uh, he he gets what he asks for, and so Artaxerxes changes his mind. Why? Because God willed for it to happen is the ultimate reason why. But there is an interesting little blip in history here that happens. Um it could be the case that one of the governors in this province beyond the river had recently revolted against Artaxerxes.
1: And just for review, beyond the river means beyond the river Euphrates, mm-hmm. which is talking about the, the area of Palestine, Syria, those regions. So that's a Persian perspective beyond the river, not an Israelite perspective, as in the case of beyond the Jordan River, which would be over to the east. This is west of Persia, beyond the river. So these these governors that you're talking about are guys like Sam Ballett and, yeah. and the mm-hmm.
0: others. So it could be the case that a governor had recently revolted against the king. And so now, if you're Artaxerxes, Nehemiah is one of your most trusted advisors, and he says, let me go to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls there. Let me kind of run Jerusalem for a while until it's rebuilt. You know, it would make sense, and Kaufman points this out in his commentary, uh, it would, it could be a smart political move on Artaxerxes' part to put a friendly governor in a fortified Jerusalem in the midst of this province that might be trying to revolt against him. It could kind of quell...
1: You mean Nehemiah is the friendly governor? Yeah,
0: Nehemiah would be the friendly governor because he's already trusted okay. by the Cause king. Because
1: there are some historical references to an unfriendly governor beyond the river. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this may been commentary. a political maneuvering by Artaxerxes to yeah. put Nehemiah over there. Yeah,
0: but even if it was, the timing uh, is definitely interesting. So yeah. ultimately, God sets the pieces in motion. Whether He just He uh, is there to make sure Artaxerxes' mind is changed, or whether He changes Artaxerxes' mind through the political situation, doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. God is the one that's well, in charge. He, here. he
1: likes Nehemiah because He's noticing. He's sad. You know, why are you sad? And that's mm-hmm. an unusual question for a tyrant to ask somebody. Yeah. But this is his cupbearer, and he relies on him. He needs him to be in a good mood. Because um, if Nehemiah suspects poison, and he is disgruntled, he might just allow that to pass on by. He could yeah. he could fake tasting it, tell the king, you know, it's... Um, It's fine, and then it's Mm -hmm. all over for Artaxerxes. Yeah. So that might have been the motivation. Maybe he really cared about Nehemiah. I tend to think that.
0: That's what it looks like from the text, I think.
1: You know, that plays into the providence as well, is that Nehemiah was a guy who was liked, and Artaxerxes was an unusual king who noticed people's emotions. Mm -hmm. Nehemiah was in the position of cupbearer, so it was important for his emotions to be good for the king. Yeah, you brought up Daniel a minute ago. I think
0: it's interesting that these guys, Nehemiah, Daniel, uh, several other characters from the Old Testament, the king likes them. Mm -hmm. Like, they don't, the king did not want to throw Daniel into the lion's den. You know, he grieved over that. These guys like them, you know, for whatever reason, uh, probably just because they're, you know, they're living according to the law and they're likable guys. You know, they're peaceful, they're kind, they're generous. Uh, but it is interesting, yeah. The king, the kings like these guys. They like the the main characters, the servants of God. So that's just something interesting. Well, you know, godly
1: know. people are useful. Godly mm-hmm. people have a good work ethic. Whether we're talking about old covenant or new covenant, they are people that leaders want around them because mm-hmm. they're respectful. You know, I'm sure it's protocol, but this let the king live forever stuff. Mm-hmm. that you see in Nehemiah 2.3. And Daniel said that kind of thing all the time to Nebuchadnezzar, even when uh, Nebuchadnezzar was threatening to tear him limb from limb. O king, live forever. You know, the respect, the um, toughness, the humility, the work ethic, the intelligence, mm-hmm. and the, you know, ultimate blessings that came upon these people versus the others really struck the kings that led around them. And, and mm-hmm. you we can say this of Mordecai, yeah. Esther, you know, anybody in the presence of a king, Jeremiah even, mm-hmm. was uh, really protected by the Babylonian kings. Uh, the, his own people hated him, but the Babylonian kings, he, he, you know, they had a chance to kill him and they protected him. Yeah, And it's this phenomenon that you see uh, the work ethic and the intelligence and the and the attitude of godly people really gets their attention.
0: Yeah. And then you come, I'm thinking, fast forward all the way to Jesus, and he goes before Pilate. Mm-hmm. And Pilate, you know, there's no indication that Pilate disliked Jesus. You know, it's actually, if there's any indication, it would be the opposite, because he says, I can't find anything wrong with this guy. Mm-hmm. I, I don't see him guilty of anything. Same thing with Paul. Uh, They seem to have
1: good rapport with the governors.
0: Yeah, over and over they kept saying he's not guilty of anything. mm -hmm. And so that is an interesting dynamic through uh, the Old and New Testament. And the last thing I've got here is uh, we already talked about the mention of Sanballat and Tobiah. And my question reading this was, who is Sanballat and why does he care what's going on in Jerusalem?
1: He's the Horonite.
0: He's the Horonite.
1: Yeah, that's what it says. What is verse ten? Sambalat the Horonite. Where's he from? Horon. Okay, I don't. I don't know. Are they
0: against the? See, I'm. I'm. just I guess I was a little bit ignorant to the, the situation here, so I didn't know if that like if that designation gives him a reason to hate Jewish people, or to, be opposed to the rebuilding. But a little digging into some commentaries. Um, Shows that Sambalat is a governor of Samaria, which at this time included, guess what? Jerusalem and Judea. So, uh, this might be some speculation here.
1: So, Sambalat had control of Jerusalem and Judea?
0: A small, uh, apparently a small amount, or he had an influence over it. He's a governor over there um, in this area that includes Jerusalem. So... How much the but city he's itself, losing it
1: to yeah. Nehemiah.
0: That could be the reason for his, that could be why he's so mad. Yeah. And this, as we'll see in our next episode, uh, the links he goes to to prevent it. But he's going to end up trying to stop them. Uh, Kaufman speculates that this would have been a great threat to Sambat's power over Judea with yeah. Nehemiah's, you know, he's favored by the king. Kind of favored of the king. Oh, Joseph is another guy we failed to mention. Oh yeah, had found favor definitely falls into that. So you have a guy like Joseph. You know, he's very favored. He's very high up in the kingdom, Mm -hmm. and he's coming over here for Jerusalem. You know, this guy's thinking, well, he he's going to outrank me if he's over Mm -hmm. here. So that could be.
1: Well, I've always, without knowing, you know, the historical background too well, I've always thought that that was the problem that these guys, and they pick up a third guy later, a Geshem, the Arab. Uh, that we'll get into in our next episode. These three are going to lose power, territory, clout by a fortified Jerusalem. They they do not benefit from a fortified Jerusalem, mm-hmm. period. You know, politically that's bad for them. And uh, it may be just, you know, they would rather have a weak Jerusalem than an uninhabited Jerusalem, or maybe... Like you said, there's some evidence that they're losing territory. They're actually losing some of their their power by Nehemiah moving in. But Nehemiah is only a temporary governor, and we can't forget that uh, years before this, Zerubbabel came in as governor of this area. So I don't. Mm-hmm. That's that's why I was a little taken aback by that by that comment yeah. that he had Jerusalem and Judea because um, a previous king Xerxes sent Zerubbabel down as governor, with the materials needed to rebuild the temple. They have built a temple in the city. So I'm thinking that, you know, they're just uh, afraid that the Jews will regain power. Let's not forget that in the past, Jews have led campaigns into these territories with the mandate to destroy the Ammonites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, Jebusites, etc., And they'd go in and take all of these people out. And that, that, of course, is centuries before this. But maybe they know the history. And Mm -hmm. they know all you have to do is have a copy of the Torah, which was around. Or know about it or hear about it. And it still has those instructions to settle the land of Canaan and utterly destroy all idol worshipers. That's in the, the law of these people. We haven't come to the New Testament yet. Which, so they, they're they maybe looking at it afraid for their own lives.
0: Yeah. It's interesting to note, uh, and I just saw this here in these notes I've got, um, he's a Horonite. Well, there's two options. It could have, He could have been called a Horonite because he worshipped the god Horan, who is I'm just going to assume is an Assyrian god or a Persian god. Um, or it could indicate that he's from Horonaim, H-O-R-O-N-A-I-M, literally never seen this word before.
1: Horonaim. Horonaim.
0: that sounds more Hebrew, uh, which is located in Moab. So, uh, you know, there could be some different of He's
1: definitely an idol worshiper, though. Yeah. There, there's no doubt. And His being an idol worship, he's targeted by the law of Moses. Mm, militarily. I, oh, yeah. You know, he's targeted militarily by the law of Moses. And, I, you know, we don't know if he's seen the law, but he's heard things. And yeah. probably corruptions of the truth, propaganda, and he believes it, and he is against that being established. And we've already, in the course of our study, looked at a restoration of worship and a restoration of the law. All the pieces are falling into the place, which is bad for an idol worshiper in the land of Canaan, in the oh, yeah. in the promised land. So now uh, the restoration of the city by Esther's day, Restoration of Honor, these people are back into their uh, original design. And, of course, they never reach the, the glory that they had under David mm-hmm. when they were defeating these people, or Joshua even. But um, they are seen as a threat probably because of these things.
0: Oh, yeah. And he's definitely an idol worshiper. This is kind of a cool note. His name means seen gives life. And scene was an Assyrian moon god. So even his name itself comes I mean it's you know, everything about him, you know, is is I guess steeped in idolatry. So this request that Nehemiah makes is a huge deal because of what's going on in the background. There's a reversal of the king's decree, which makes Nehemiah's request very risky. King changes his plans, and now you have this angry governor in place. <laughs>
1: This third part, uh, you know, where we apply, I, you know, I've got a quotation here from Lily Tomlin, who said, "I always wanted to be somebody. I should have been more specific." You know, and and that kind of introduces what all of our application is going to be about. We're calling this envisioning the city, and really, the best application, especially for leaders, is the need for vision and how to how to have vision. And how to make it applicable to what you are doing. Here we see Nehemiah seeing the city before the city is built. And if he hadn't done that, then he wouldn't have he wouldn't have uh, ever built the city really. Especially, he definitely wouldn't have been as successful as he was. There's a story about uh, Walt Disney World and when it was first opened, and um, his, Walt Disney had died by this time, but his wife was asked to speak at the grand opening. And she was introduced by a man who said, Mrs. Disney, I wish Walt could have seen this. And she stood up and said, he did. And then she sat down. That was her speech. And what was she saying is, uh, what she was saying, Walt Disney saw Walt Disney World before Walt Disney World was built. And he saw it just as it was after he died. Mm -hmm. That's vision. And uh, Nehemiah is doing that here, and it's really important to note, you know, how he does that. It's a very important part of leadership. And, you know, let's just say at the beginning, this will be our little curmudgeon section of the podcast Mm -hmm. where we gripe a little bit. But, you know, in the church, we're really bad at this. We we don't do this like we should. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think vision is just an aspect of faith. Oh, yeah. We're to walk by faith, not by sight. And a lot of times in church leadership, we're walking by sight, not by faith. And vision vision is about faith. It's a kind of faith where we see what God wants us to do before we do it, and then we do it. And there's uh, a few things that he does. For the vision, and and I see, I saw some, and you saw some, so we'll just share them, you know, casually as we come to them. The first, the first thing is, you know, the preparation for the vision. Yeah, it wasn't just like one day this idea impulsively popped into his head, and he ran to the king to say, "Hey, guess what, Artaxerxes? I, I was thinking about something. that had this great idea." Yeah, it wasn't a great idea. It was a vision that he put a lot of time into. We mentioned four months of prayer and fasting went into this. And it's not the kind of fasting where, you know, I'm going to juice for a little while to get healthy again, or I'm going to ritualistically fast. But it was a fasting brought on by care, concern, and anxiety. And we talked about this idea last week that concern without prayer leads to anxiety. Concern with prayer leads to results. I'm not sure that's exactly how we put it, but... You know, it didn't end in anxiety. He got up and did something about it. So it's not the sinful worry that we read about in the New Testament. It, it was good concern, and it led to something because he was praying. And in his praying over those four months, he was preparing. And uh, that preparation was part of the vision. And uh, so he does all of that. And then then you also have, I think, along with the prayer, you have the inspection of the city it was going out at night and this goes against you know the impulsive nature that a lot of us have i'm i'm bad about wanting to you know share my ideas immediately i'm a talker i like to you know tell somebody everything that's on my mind oh yeah i relate to that and yeah you have to <laughs> hear that all the time being one of the people that i unload that on oh, no, i We're do a the same basis. thing uh, but you know he is very careful not to share anything with Artaxerxes for four months, and it helped him that Artaxerxes noticed and asked, you know, what's on your mind? Just kind of like Esther needed her husband to invite her in, and she took a great risk in going in uninvited. Well, Artaxerxes invited Nehemiah to unload his vision. Mm-hmm. Well, now, he's before he tells the people what he's got planned, He's going to take a look at the city. After all, this is a man who's been born and reared in Persia. He's never seen Jerusalem, mm-hmm. and if he got that upset about Jerusalem having never seen it before, just think about you know the the emotional roller coaster it was for him to inspect the city and see parts that his uh, animal couldn't even navigate. And, mm-hmm. You know, see how bad the city was firsthand. But but he went and he inspected that. And I think the reason the inspired writer goes into great detail about his inspection is because it's an important part of, of vision, uh, of having vision and formulating a vision is you've got to put a little preparation into it. Oh yeah. You got to do some research. Mm-hmm. And uh, he does that very carefully. You know, at night, not because it's easier to see at night, but because it was important that these people not know what he's up to until the right moment. Yeah, I think with. Envisioning something like this, and
0: sort of Nehemiah with the city. I remember my, my grandpa um, would always tell me he'd help me write sermons all the time. He still does to this day. Um, but he always told us, and doing like speech for lads to leaders, there are three rules to make sure to making sure that you have a good sermon prepared, and those three rules are preparation, preparation, and preparation. Yes, And I think the same is true of any vision that you have. You've got to prepare for, I mean, first you got to get your vision ready, and then you've got to know what steps you're going, you got to plan out what steps you're going to take and when you're going to take those steps accordingly. And I, I certainly think that those three rules apply to any sort of vision that you have. Like with your church, if you have a vision you want to reach, well... You know, Nehemiah could have just said, "This is my vision," and then stopped there. And then he would have had, you know, no plan of attack, nothing to go on, and it probably wouldn't have gotten done. But because Nehemiah had this plan, he had a good vision. Then he had a good plan. And he was prepared. He had a good plan to go along with it, and I think that's why it got done. Um, I, I think his some of his preparation included he identified the problem first of all, which was him, you know, praying and fasting and being upset over the problem. Then he took the time to consider a solution, he planned out his solution, and then he presented his plan. And that's ultimately how he went about doing it. And I think he, you know, I think we can tell from the text, he's a pretty smart guy. He's a pretty thoughtful guy. He knows how to get something done. Yeah.
1: Let's talk about the last part that you enumerated, um, presented the plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read a book, I think we mentioned it last episode by Andy Stanley called Visioneering. Mm -hmm. It's leadership based on the book of Nehemiah. And he has a term that he coined for communicating a vision, vision casting. And so that's what he calls communicating the picture that you have in your head to others. And you have to put a lot of effort and work into that. You see Nehemiah giving a really good speech here. It's brief but effective. The people get excited after he talks about rebuilding the walls. Of course, you could say that he did that with Artaxerxes as well. And it doesn't matter how good your vision is, if you can't communicate it to the people, it's going to break down and not get done because you can't do it by yourself. So you have to recruit, you have to uh, cast your vision in an effective way, and, and people have to buy into it. And if they don't buy into it, then it's not going to happen, no matter how worthy or needful it is. Uh, I've got a quote here from Stanley's book. The severity of the change must be matched by a clarity of connection to the vision. If it is not, the decision will easily be interpreted as a quest for power or control. Um, So, severity of change, you know, he's wanting to change the state of affairs in Jerusalem. Change... Jerusalem from a defenseless city to a fortified city. That's a big, severe change. But the severity of the change has to be matched by a clarity there where he connects the people to the vision. And that's in the communication of the thing. So, you know, we can apply this in so many ways. If you want to make disciples at your church which I hope that you know all of us want because that's our basic mission that we've been given. We have got to go through these same steps. We first have to see yeah. it in prayer. You know, pray to the Lord, study from his word and discover this is really what God wants us to do. And then we have to spend a little time formulating a plan. And we have to do our research and inspect the congregation for obstacles that get in the way of that growth. And we have to see what is not being done, what is already being done that needs to be nurtured and embraced and and led forward. And you have to see all of that. and, And once you get that, then there has to be a communication to your leaders. They have to buy into it. Then you've got to communicate it to the church. They have to buy into it. And then your vision is cast. Everybody's ready to work then you have the work of of bringing the vision into fruition, mm-hmm. which I guess is the the final stage in all of that. And yep. I don't know if you have another P word for that, uh, but after the presentation, there is the practice of the vision, mm-hmm. if you want to say that. Mm-hmm. You've got to practice it, and that could be where it breaks down as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's why Nehemiah is such a great model for leadership is his vision. Mm-hmm. I think the rest of what we're gonna see is stuff that a lot of leaders try to do. The part that at least in a church context that I see that we don't match Nehemiah is in his vision. His vision. Mm-hmm. Uh you, you said something else though about um during the break you were talking about um how he adjusted the plans or what was it?
0: He uh oh the walls. Yeah. Uh he did inspect the wall uh on the I guess it's like the south if the map I was looking at had north at the top, then it's like on the south um uh, I guess the southeast side of the city, those walls that he where the donkey can't get by. Um they ended up building if you search a map, um, you can see it and just on Google Image you type in Nehemiah rebuilds the walls, map of Jerusalem. Um, it shows where the old wall used to be, and the old wall used to come out a little bit further. Uh, but apparently, there was so much rubble and destruction, and the something was wrong with the land in that area. Um, this is going off what I remember studying for this from last week. But there was so much rubble, so much destruction right there that they said we can't we can't build the wall right here, and they had to actually go further up on the hill. Um, and build the wall closer into the city than it was. Where it used to be out a little bit, it was up, and it was kind of up on this hill, and there's tiered layers of, like, stone walls where the wall used to be. So, you know, coming starting at the bottom of the hill, you'd have a wall coming up then it'd be flat, kind of like a little plateau. The ground would be even with the wall. Then it'd go up again and again, and then you finally get to the top of the hill. Now here's the big wall of the Sea of Jerusalem. So he did, I guess... Uh, in his inspection he found like you were saying if you inspect the church and you find what things need to be fixed uh, what obstacles are going to be in your way you know Nehemiah as a part of his preparation went in and knew that that part of the city was down and that it was going to be very difficult to rebuild there and they they came up with a solution because they were prepared for it He he knew the lay of the land and I think that that's directly applicable to a church situation. You know, you have to know what situations are are you know going to require some harder work and going to require a little more difficult solution, maybe than some others.
1: You've got to distinguish your non-negotiables from your negotiables. Mm-hmm. I, you, I, I don't think that anybody is able to keep their vision fully formed throughout the process. There's going to be some things that have to be changed, just like this wall had to be moved back a few feet. Our vision for our churches and our families or whatever it is is going to have to be adjusted along the way, but you can't adjust everything or the whole vision does not remain intact. For the vision to have to remain intact, you have to do that work of distinguishing between what what is a negotiable and what is a non-negotiable. And Of course, in Nehemiah's case... This city has to be defended. Now I can defend this city by moving this wall back a few feet, just as well as I could defend it in the original location. So I'm going to move the wall back. Mm-hmm. But if the idea was let's just not put a wall in in this section, you know that is a, that gets into a non-negotiable. Yeah, and Nehemiah would have to stop whoever had that crazy idea and say, "You're forgetting the whole point of the vision." The point of the vision is not to make Jerusalem look better, it's to make Jerusalem defensible. So we're gonna put a wall up, it's just gonna be back here instead of right here. Yeah. And I hate to put you on the
0: spot and on record here okay. asking you this, but what sort of things do you think in the church? Like how do you how do I make a distinction between, well, I can you know, I can move the walls back a few feet here or mm-hmm. You know what situation I said. Well, this is not negotiable.
1: now we're in an interview. One well,
0: no, no. If I'm if I'm like working with yeah. the teenagers here at, at Asheville Road. What's a
1: negotiable and what's a non-negotiable? Yeah. Well, that's a big big question. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if we're talking about in terms of of anything, though, the primary thing is making disciples. Whether you're talking about youth work or or uh, just the work in general. It's it's yeah. about making disciples. But then, but then you have to decide. There's a lot of things we can do to quote unquote make disciples mm-hmm. that might challenge the non negotiables of Scripture. And you know we have that mandate from First yeah. Corinthians four six. Do not go what it, do not go beyond what is written. So we have to determine the matters of faith versus the matters of discretion or opinion, and that's the lines have been drawn for us already mm-hmm. uh we've but then there's priorities you know souls need to come first and uh you know we have to keep that in mind as well so uh, let's use you sent me an article uh right before we started recording this and I skimmed it about music and where that is going in in mm-hmm. religion in general yeah outside the churches of Christ and, and religion in general and in the churches of Christ as well. Everybody knows this. It's becoming more and more performance-based. Now somebody envisioned that way back and saw that people would get really excited by performance-based music in church worship. And so far it has been successful in getting people into assembly halls or concert halls, whatever they are. Uh, we've got some very large churches these days, and music is a very important part of their front formula. Some might even argue the most important part of the formula. Okay, but has have we had an essential change in the worship of the church in order to do this? Did a non-negotiable get broken in this vision mm-hmm. in order to accomplish one of the one of the non-negotiables, which is to bring people in? See, sometimes in a vision you always have more than one non-negotiable and they might have the primary one but then yeah. you have the others. So this music question in the article that that you sent said that, you know, performance-based music gets away from the whole idea of worship, which is yeah. it's not about the performers but about the one for whom we're performing. Yeah. And you know, when you got close-ups of the Uh, artists, and they're doing original songs that the audience doesn't know the words to, and the music's so loud that you cannot hear the um, worshipers singing, and of course, get into instrumental music and worship, what the Bible says about that, and how it's not authorized by the New Testament, Mm -hmm. and many, many other concerns, some that we emphasize, some that we don't. You see here, somebody's vision got off base. Because they didn't take the time to distinguish negotiables from non negotiables. Yeah,
0: I think that is an excellent point. Because at that point and to make it extremely practical with that sort of idea about worship, you know, whether it becomes all about the performance based singing or we're also really guilty of performance based performance based preaching as well. You know, I know people that don't wanna they don't go to church at a certain place because They don't think the preacher is a good enough speaker for them. They don't Mm -hmm. think, you know, dynamic enough and that sort of thing. And, you know, no longer is worship about God. It's about, well, how good is the preacher? One
1: person's preference. Yeah. Because another thing is I know a lot of people who enjoy a cappella singing, you know, as entertainment. I'm not one of them. I I enjoy it as worship. But, you know, if I had a choice between instrumental music, for entertainment or cappella singing for entertainment, I I will go with the instrumental music most of the time.
0: Yeah.
1: Same with preaching. You know, some people like a real loud preacher who stomps mm-hmm. his feet and shouts a lot and preaches. Uh, they call it dynamically, and yeah. then other people prefer a more thoughtful approach, mm-hmm. gentler approach. And how are you going to cater to the fickle nature of people, where you have as yeah. many? ideas as armpits in the room, you know, that all stink. Um, that's pretty good. I might have gotten that expression mixed yeah. up a little bit, but it only works in the long run if you are concerned about what God wants in worship. That that's the only way it's gonna work. And we've talked about the the mega church movement and yeah. you know, I, I I don't know if this is your opinion, but I, I think it's gonna be short short lived. Yeah. I, I I think we'll be on the other extreme a few decades from now, in house churches where people have reacted so much to the stadium worship that they're now, you know, going into their homes and having little groups of eight yeah. or ten worshiping as authentic worship. So you know, it's uh, we live in a pendulum of trends, and yeah. I just see this happening. And uh, you know, it all gets down to what we envision. And, uh, you know, but let's let's get back to the point as we and we need to wrap this up. Yeah. We, you're only going to do what you see. And let me... I wanted to make this point for our cynical, depressed, grumpy Christians out there who are listening. And I can be one of those sometimes, so mm-hmm. I'm kind of talking to myself okay. here on this one. If all that you ever see... About your church, your family, your friendships, you know, whatever, your career is bad. That's exactly what it's going to be. Because life is one self fulfilling prophecy after another. It's just what it is. Cynical people make cynical churches. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. So we need to see good and see. Forgiveness and see love and see evangelism and see promise and see hope if that's the kind of church, kind of kingdom that we want to build with Christ.
0: Yeah, we need to be searching for the positives as opposed to the negatives, I guess. Or yeah. looking for them and trying to, you know, looking for them in the present as, as well as trying to envision them for what you want to be done. In the
1: future. you see the negatives the way Nehemiah saw the negatives there you know there's a section of this wall that I can't rebuild right here. So I'm going to back it up and build around it. yeah you see the obstacles that way as challenges you know it's put all the time mm-hmm. and that's a very good way to see them. instead of just focusing on them you go around them and you keep on building. Mm-hmm. So we all need to remember that when we start to get kind of grumpy and murmur and complain all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for joining us on the 66 podcast. You can look us up at d66.net. 66 is a the number there. Contact us at uh, akingsley at arcoc.com or dkaiser at arcoc.com. Our Twitter feed is the 66... 66- Yes, the, 66 the 66 Podcast, podcast. Yeah. Yeah. That's it, I think it's just at yeah. the 66 podcast. At the 66 Podcast We're still learning it ourselves But you can get updates on that And at least know when the next episode is up We want, we hope that everybody Is wanting to follow us through This great journey that we have going We've already covered uh, One book We're on our second one here, we're still early in it But we're very excited about this Challenge that we have we're having fun. We hope that you'll have fun with us. So keep with us. Join us next time on The Sixty Six.